Hello and welcome to episode 65 of the Good Good Golf Podcast. Rob Murray in the chair and excited for today's episode as we prepare to nerd out on one of our favourite topics. Yes, we're going to talk golf course architecture today, but from a bit of a different perspective. Special guest Colin Chris wrote a brilliantly thought-provoking piece for the Friday website last week and as punishment for his excellence, he's having to spend some time with us today. Really looking forward to that chat and I'll bring Colin in in just a moment, but before that, my co-conspirator on this golf podcasting journey, Adrian Logue, is in the studio, and I'm sure that he, like me, is keen to hook into the nitty-gritty of Colin's piece from last week. It's been a while since we talked architecture. I think Colin's going to be an excellent person to do that with today, Logue. Absolutely, yeah. This article that Colin wrote is really catnip for me. Um, I, everything in there was the sort of topics I love talking about, and uh, that not all of it I think we're 100% in agreement with, but a lot of it is very similar to the sort of stuff we like to talk about. So Thought-provoking, I think, yeah. is the key, and that's what makes it so good. Before we hear from Colin, I wanted to give listeners a taste of what got us so interested mm. after reading his essay last week. So here's a small sample. Colin writes, Bunkers are dug precisely the correct size and shape in the correct position, and their faces are correctly seated yearly by hand. Fairways are graded and raised a few feet, as the correct shot into the exact green should be experienced equally by all who find themselves in the correct portion of fairway. Mounds are placed here and there and there, explicitly for your golfing pleasure. Greens are like bomb testing sites, unrecognisable from the previous landscape, or perhaps indiscernible from the previous landscape. Can you even remember the previous landscape? Colin Chris, welcome. Thanks for taking some time. What are, you, what, what are the points you're trying to make here with this piece, which we'll put a link to in the show notes before Logue jumps in and starts talking about what should be in the show notes so people can read themselves. What are you trying to get at here? Fascinating piece you've written. Sure, yeah. Uh, thank you, first of all, for having me on. Um, but yeah, in that paragraph particularly, I'm, I'm setting up this notion of, of big golf, which I think is a lot of golf architecture today um, in this era. And specifically with those little riffs, I think I'm, I'm getting at the point that there's this hyper-professionalization of golf course architecture right now. And golf course architects are, are very good at their jobs right now. And my argument in this piece maybe is that they're a little too good. And, you know, everything they make turns out to be a little bit scripted, right? There's a dogma that they either follow or that they um, turn away from, right? Either way, the golfer can feel the architect's hand at every point on a golf hole. Mm. Really, really sort of fascinating stuff. First things first, how's it gone down with architects? Lots of them read the Friday site, listen to their podcast. <laughs> Have you had any sort of pushback? Because if you're an architect, you could understand how you might initially take some offense at, at some of the notions you've put here. Yes, absolutely. Um, there's been a little pushback, but, but not too much. Um, I've stayed off of golf clubs. Atlas uh, in time, <laughs> time publishing it. Uh, but I do think, um, I mean, I do think this is maybe something that, that isn't as uh, appreciative of their work as, as other pieces that have been written in the fried egg and elsewhere. Um, even though, as I said, right, these architects are tremendous at their jobs. Um, they're great, great architects. Hmm. They're great at delivering what the golfers are asking for, right? But the the sort of, I feel like the sort of courses you're referring to, or the sort of micro detail that they're putting into the land, which some architects would would say that's not always the case. That you know where there's a there's a landform that looks right already, they'll just mostly leave it alone. Um, uh, but there is this sort of micro shaping that I think occurs as the last 
step before seeding, for example, which I don't think necessarily occurred before when you know you had a construction group uh, crew building a McDonald Rainer site. You know they were just a construction crew, like they weren't doing any micro detailing at the very end. But there is uh, this this sort of course that's been um, name name a couple. What are you thinking of when you with this sort of course? What are you thinking of? Well, the one I keep referring to in the podcast is Tara Edy. Oh, and I think to lesser extent, somewhere like a um, Peninsula Kingswood down here as well, uh, where you know if you look way off the playing surfaces, every little piece of sand and and scrub and everything is still sort of micro detailed and been thought about. It's been thought about. Even even the natural areas are you know they're left natural in a very deliberate way. But are they really that natural? You know, it's still it takes a lot of management to maintain a natural area. Because I think the actual natural state of things with all of the introduced species that surround a golf course and are in a golf course, including the grass, the natural thing is for a lot of those introduced species to take over everything. So to push continually push those back and maintain a natural area is, is tough. Um, and it, it becomes a very unnatural exercise. <laughs> so I think that's part of what Colin's saying, but also the, the thing I've always thought is that some modern courses look like they're built 100% in a CAD program, and yeah. when you've got the luxury of looking at something on screen for for days and weeks, you can tweak it to perfection, and you get this incredibly deliberate placement of all of the elements and the gradients, and and it, all the gradients get sort of the edges taken off them so that they're just right, but they're not too extreme because it's hard again. But it all comes back to this supply and demand, like. That's what golfers want. They, they want this this sort of perfect experience rather than a more random experience. While you're answering that, Colin, have a think about this as a question. Is it not just the natural temptation of humans to want to interfere and think that we can make things better? But just some thoughts on what Colin, what um, Logue was saying there. Has he got that right? Is that sort of what you were trying to, to get at, partly? Yeah, I think that's part of it. Yeah, Um Actually, you know, historically in terms of the, and you mentioned Terra Edi, I think this is um, partly maybe a consequence of the, de- the design build model kind of coming to the forefront of, of golf course architecture, where the architect does have such a direct hand in the building of the course. Um, you know, but yes, to your point, Rod, right, there's that, that impulse to smooth that the human hand has with any art, right? And the idea... Um, so I, I come from a poetry background, the oft criticized thing in the United States right now is the poetry MFA program, which is a master's of fine arts, right? A a graduate program explicitly to teach people how to write poetry. Um, and the criticism of it is that, well, if everyone has this perfect, well-developed idea of what a poem is, right, you leave out a lot of the the little randomness, you know, the little mistakes, even you could call them mistakes uh, that make for evolving art that make for um, strong art in many cases. Right. Mm. I often, I was just said this to, to Adrian before we started, I often think about, is it the 14th at North Berwick, Adrian, with the stone wall? 13th, 13th at, at North Berwick. You couldn't design that in the modern era, not even the, the, the revered architects of today could get away with doing that, and nor should you because it wouldn't work, would it, Colin? That can only work that whole if all of those elements are already in place and anything that tries to replicate it will automatically fail. 
because you can't replicate it, can you? Yeah, I don't think anyone's particularly afraid of simulators taking over golf, you know, and no one going outside to play golf anymore. And part of it's because of that, no matter how realistic they become, you know, there's a sense of place that comes from golf. And part of that place is exactly, as you say, all these features kind of, you know, being at this, this intersection in this one golf hole, in this one feature, whatever it is. Um, yeah, I think that's right. I wonder whether we're overthinking. Now, I read somewhere like years ago, I think it might have been a scientist who said we could spend millions and millions of man hours and in almost always perfect recreating a rock, mm-hmm. but you would never actually get there. Yeah. When you picked up the two of them, you would know straight away that one wasn't a rock and one was. Yeah, well, there's that other thing where if you ask a human to uh, write down a 100 random coin tosses without tossing a coin, just make it look random, you you can instantly tell the one the human's done versus an actual right. set of random coin tosses because in in a real set of coin tosses, you get big streaks of heads or tails, and humans instinctively will just never do that, that because they don't, random. They, they don't believe that it <laughs> right. could possibly happen. Right. Um, and it's like exactly. the 13th at North Berwick is a similar thing, like, the, the stone wall there is right up against the green. Like, and I, I don't think anybody would do that in a CAD program these days. They'd move it back a little bit. You know, even if you had a stone wall, some crazy customer who wanted, oh, let's build a stone wall in my golf course, you know, I want it as a tribute to the thing. It'd be tough for them to put it right up against the green. And that green is tiny as well. It's a really small green. Like, that, that's another thing I don't think you'd see these days. Mm. So... That it's and what it, you know, it, distinguishes it goes it. the other direction as well, right? If we go across the first there, you know, I don't think there's any way a contemporary architect makes nine and ten at the old course, right? Which is for for many people this weak part of the property. Um yep. if we can, you know, even consider the one of the greatest courses in the world to have weak holes. Um, no one would leave those holes like that, I don't think. Yeah, the eighth as well. I mean, yeah, it's yeah. short, yeah. short. It's kind of a nothing hole. <laughs> but it, but it's what it's those little bits of banality that highlight the highs. I think was it Simpson that wrote about that that you needed to have, for want of a better term, some boring holes yeah. so that you could appreciate the truly great and exciting holes. If you have eighteen great exciting holes, they're not great, are they? They're just eighteen. Sort of holes. So, what prompted this, Colin? Did you deliberately go out of your way to upset a bunch of architects? Is that what happened there? Just bored at home one Sunday and thought, "How can I upset a bunch of people?" Yeah, you know, I've been I've been thinking about this for a long time because through my golfing life, I've tended to prefer these smaller courses, right, and these municipal courses and the the weird, right, the weird on a golf course, the quirky. Um, and then I, I went to play, and this is going to be a direct shout out here i went to play chambers bay which is a fine course a terrific course right um hosted a wonderful u.s open and strategic by any you know measure of the word but on the drive home and i live several hours from chambers bay on the drive home i couldn't help but think about how how sculpted it felt right even the um wayward shots right if i went off the the line of charm I would have, it, you know, architectural thought to interact with, even off of the line of charm. There was no place where I could be by myself as a golfer. The architect was always right there with me. 
and I didn't really enjoy that. <laughs> um, so that was kind of the the first experience. So of course I I single out Chambers Bay here. It's not. Um, I don't think it's a bad golf course. I don't think it's the the biggest of big golf either. So. We'll tease out that big golf, small golf thing a little bit more in in the middle. And I think you might even reference this in the story. It's been a week since I read it, Simon. Uh, Derek Duncan on Feed the Ball, which is a fabulous podcast everybody should listen to uh, whenever you get the chance, talks to designers. He often asks this question about what's next for golf course design because everything is somewhat cyclical and things need to sort of change and evolve over time. Is part of what you're getting at here this notion of starting to think about what might come next? We've had... The best part of twenty years now, essentially, of um, what's the what's the core Crenshaw course that started it all? Sand Valley, oh, Sand, Sand Hills, Sand, Sand Hills. Hills. Sorry, yeah. So we've had sort of almost twenty years, realistically, of that that Sand Hills effect. I think we've got mm. Barnboogle Dunes here in Australia, and mm. um, Bandon, Bandon in in Oregon there, and that's been fantastic. And all of those golf courses are fantastic. You've taken on a difficult project here, trying to say this stuff is all good, but find the fault with it anyway. But is this part of what we might think about with what comes next, Colin, the notion of small golf, by which you don't mean size? So first explain the difference between big and small golf for people to let them understand what you're talking about with those concepts, and then about how this might plug into what golf courses could be in the future. Yeah, I think I think I hope that this is something golf courses could be in the future. Uh, the difference between big golf and small golf, it's it's – I spend much of the article kind of thinking about this and exploring that difference, this, this inexact and imprecise dichotomy, as all dichotomies are. Um, I think the best analogy I've found to illustrate this difference is, is if one goes into a museum, they can go to the work of the old masters, right? And the, the great painters of the past and the impressionists and you know, you can go see all these great artists who have, who have done remarkable work. Um, and then any good museum will have another wing for folk art, right? And there's nothing to say that folk art is any less uh, artistic, right? Any less valuable than um, the other artwork, right? The artwork of the old masters. It's, it's just a different theory of art, right? The theory that not everything has to be controlled by an artistic theory. And I think that ultimately is the the difference here, right? Big golf has to do with rules. And you either follow the rules when you're designing a course or you break them. Small golf is almost, in a way, it's regressive, right? You are backing off as an architect and not only letting the land tell you what wants to be there, but really just letting the land be what is there. Um, I, yeah, I think uh, generally you find this in municipal golf courses, right? Mm-hmm. Very old mm-hmm. golf courses where they didn't have the technology to, to move a lot of dirt. Um, but of course, those aren't the golf courses that are typically built today, especially by great designers, um, because of course they have theories that they want to execute or betray. Mm-hmm. So yeah, that's roughly the difference. <laughs> Not enough money to stuff it Just up. To stuff it up. There's a couple of themes at play there, and one that you often bring up, Adrian, which I have always sort of thought was interesting. And you find this at a lot of the suburban courses around Sydney, mm-hmm. where somebody from the council, possibly without any knowledge of or interest in golf, has been told, 
we want to have a golf course over there and they've been charged with doing it. It might be an engineer or a parks and gardens sort of person. But within those golf courses, you almost always have something mm. that is amazing, don't you? Accidentally. You do. And, and I wonder whether yeah. – something has always fascinated me from a routing point of view is that you wonder if the you know this novice architect who's been tasked with this job has just looked at the shape of the land and thought, okay, how, how can I fit uh, – I've got – sort of a par target you know 68 or whatever and i've got to have a mix of par threes par fours par fives how can i just fit them in it's just a puzzle that they're trying to solve how can i fit this in and i've often thought it'd be an interesting architecture routing exercise to take a map of a bit bigger property and just drop 18 matchsticks on it and and just just nudge them so that they're not necessarily all overlapping each other, but just nudge them into positions and then just see what you get or, and, and have the, the fortitude to stick to that and see. Is Logue as nuts as he sounds there, Colin? <laughs> but some amazing routings are completely random. Like, a, mm. you know, the, the old course we often no. talk about here. You never just, built that. <laughs> it's just like it's how you would walk the property. You would walk out along one boundary You'd go have a look at the Firth, and then you'd come back. A bit of a loop and come yeah. back. Yeah. <laughs> it's, right. it, that, that's randomness the, the in a sense. Shepherds who established the old course had a, a working theory of golf course architecture, <laughs> right? right? <laughs> a- angles and all the stuff that apparently doesn't matter anymore that makes sort of golf interesting, at least to think about, if not necessarily to play, if you're one of the, the best in the world, if you accept all of that stuff that angles don't matter, just bash it, et cetera, et cetera. It brings something interesting to mind, though, Colin, that notion of, I interviewed Bob Harrison, who you've probably heard of. He's a golf course designer down here, worked with Greg Norman for a long time, been out on his own for for quite a while. There's a thing called snag golf. It's like an introduction to golf for kids. They use it like a Velcro tennis ball and big plastic headed. You can go around to schools and you can set it up on a basketball court indoors or you can set it up. Sounds like something you've had to write about. Outdoors, I have had to write about snag golf. I actually think snag golf is a very good idea and it's been a very successful program. I think Jack Nicholas might back it in the States. In fact, the best thing about it is that at the end, the teacher puts on this big suit, sort of like the Michelin Man. And the kids whack balls at them. Because it's a Velcro suit, the balls stick to it, and everyone has great fun. But one of the things they do with this, Colin, and I remember Bob Harrison just stopped dead in his tracks. He must have been silent for 30 or 40 seconds after I'd mentioned this to him. They get the kids to design a golf course. They learn to whack the ball around. They say, okay, now design a golf course around it. And I, you can almost guarantee, and I think this was Bob's thought, you could almost guarantee – Nothing that they do would fit with any theory of golf course mm-hmm. architecture, and yet they probably come up with incredibly interesting hazards and 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 sort of challenges to make the game interesting. Some of that gets lost a bit, doesn't it, with theory and thought and master's degrees and all that sort of stuff. Things become formulated. Yeah, the the uh, whoever put the clothesline in my backyard when I grew <laughs> up in Maitland was determined the whole strategy of the backyard <laughs> course I had built around with wiffle balls around the backyard and Maitland. It was your valley of sin. It dictated the strategy of the entire hole. Well, it, it was kind of – it serves as a, as a hole as well. Like, you know, the hill's hoist has a little hole the right there, size, so, yeah. Sorry, Colin. So what, what, what of that and some of those notions of – is this not just the natural progression? Is this not where golf course architecture was bound to end up where we are right now? Yeah, I think that's, I think that's right. You know, as any – Art progresses as any game progresses, right? There will be continual refinement until you have this this sculptured thing that people can look at and talk about and think about. But what that refinement neglects and even threatens um, is the exploration that I think everyone is familiar with in the game, right? Whether it be 
you hitting a wiffle ball around your backyard and trying to avoid the clothesline or, you know, hitting a golf ball at your teacher and trying to trying to get it to stick to him. You know, it's this idea that there's something to be found, right? Something to be encountered that isn't necessarily anyone else is doing except your own. Uh, and that is that is what I love in golf courses, right? I go totally sideways on a hole. You might imagine I don't hit the ball very straight off the tee. So I go sideways on a hole and I find myself with these really totally, I mean, just such strange positions and angles and shots, shots that I'm sure no architect had ever imagined, right? And I feel like I'm like I'm back in my backyard with a club and a wiffle ball, you know, trying to trying to get it down into a hole. Hmm. Yeah, I really like that notion of you, you're you're out in just a bit of bushland or something because that's that's where you've hit it <laughs> and uh, that's get, deal with whatever you, yeah. you find there. Yeah. I've pulled out a couple of quotes as I'm sure Adrian has. I'm not necessarily disagreeable. Logue is disagreeable. That's just how he's wired. But some that I just think are no, interesting. I'm not. <laughs> that's exactly right. <laughs> It's not an argument. Yes, it is. If big golf asks, how can this landscape be made perfect for golf? Small golf, as I'll call it, asks, how can golf be played on this landscape? And I think that's what we've just been talking about. That that does wrap it up quite succinctly, that notion of big golf versus small golf. And the other one that struck me, it's widely accepted axiom that good golf architecture provides options. But the more big golf I play, the less I care about options and the more I care about possibilities. And I've fallen right into this rabbit hole here surely surely it's options that make golf interesting courses that are narrow one-dimensional dictatorial you have to hit it from point a to point b to then turn and get it to point c and that's the only way to play surely we cannot make the case that that's in any way in more any well certainly not more interesting than the old course where you can stand on the tee and all the shades of gray as mike clayton likes to call them are there in front of you pick your own route to get to the hole tease that out for me options Right. I, I think you, you pick your own route to the hole on the old course, but no one has chosen the possibilities for you previous to that, right? No one has dictated the options that you have. Oh, he's good. Um, mm. He's too good. That's good. I think, mm. I think, uh, I think I've heard you speak about the 14th at St. Andrews, one of the most marvelous golf holes in the world, right? That par five. And essentially that's a, a flat, well, more of a bumpy piece of ground, right, with hazards up the middle and hazards up by the green. And there's a famous drawing in Spirit of St. Andrews that, that Mackenzie has where there are all these different options, right, laid out, you know, and you can go left off the tee, right off the tee, straight, and, and then, you, you know, they cross, and it's this nice little web, this sketch that he made of the 14th at St. Andrews. But... Of course, you might try to replicate that as an architect. Of course, that's not what makes that hole charming. Those five or six or even ten routes that Alistair McKenzie has sketched out, it's the thousands of routes, right? It's the, the possibilities of being somewhere that you haven't been before. Um, these, these little pieces of, of exploration, Right, that you find on the way from one point to a little hole several hundred yards away. Uh, that's what, what makes that hole great, I think. Mm. Yeah, also because, and this is impossible to plan on a, on a computer screen, 
but also because wherever you hit it, the permutations from that spot are almost okay. infinite as well. <laughs> it's, it's, it's a real so web, isn't exactly. it? That, that's impossible to plan. Like it's just it's not like it's a preordained. You went left or you went right, and therefore you're going left or right the entire hole. Like that's that's not how it works. You can you can go out onto the fifth fairway, and then decide, oh no, I'm going to try and get back to the Elysian Fields over there, or you can keep going up the fifth, or or you can go for the Elysian Fields and. And double double cross yourself, and and can end up somewhere around Hell Bunker or something like that. And then from there, there's infinite possibilities. Well, it's just yeah, it's it's an incredible right. And because of that, that inability to plan that right, it it has called into the question. It it is uh, it has called into question the very notion of planning a golf hole. Right? What what is the point of a plan other than to begin to eliminate those possibilities? Right. What is the point of a plan, like shaping an, a piece of art, right? Other than to uh, change the possibilities ahead of you to what you think are most desirable options. Very, very thought provoking. It's <laughs> yeah. too good. It's yeah. got us both here. Because it really makes the case for randomness, yeah. doesn't yeah, it? Yeah, it does. Because randomness has no predetermined outcomes. No, it's right. just it's just random. One, so one of my favorite books I've ever read was a book called The Dice Man by a guy called Luke Reinhardt, and yeah. this guy just lived his life on the toss of a dice. But he would have six options, and he wouldn't choose them. The dice would choose. I'm thinking about what you're saying there with McKenzie looking at that 14th hole and mapping out the thing. The difference there is McKenzie then goes and designs a hole with that in mind is completely different to being presented with that and then finding those options, which I guess is the point of what you're saying is. And it's impossible for it to be any other way uh, unless you – well, Bill Core said something really interesting on Derek's Feed the Ball podcast. I think he was on very early in the piece. And he talked about the initial sort of ideas for routing a golf course when he first got to a site. And I had never thought about this. And he said that the first thing he does is he walks the property. And however you naturally walk the property is a very good clue to how the golf course maybe should unfold. So there we got the human interjection there. But he said, quite often you'll see – Animals will find paths around a property that make sense for all sorts of reasons. And those things that are shown to you, I thought that was fast. I've never heard anybody else talk about that as an idea. We're going to talk paths now. You brought the conversation yeah, to paths. <laughs> oh, I mean, I think, I think that I, I vividly remember Bill Kors saying that. Mm. And that almost prevented me from name checking him in the article, <laughs> right? Because that is that is such a... Just as near as you can get yes. to small golf, right? Mm. The idea that you let the animals decide where you'll hit the golf shots. Um, as at the beginning of Spirit of St. Andrews, right? Mackenzie laments that there are no more rabbits in the old course chewing down the greens. Um, you know, it's, it's one of these ideas that, that, well, we just follow what is out there, right? We follow what is out there and we let um, the challenges kind of present themselves to us rather than seeking out challenge or, or curating challenge. Um, yeah, I think that method is, is exceptional, right? Exceptional. Yeah, I'm glad you remembered that because I've often wondered whether I imagined <laughs> that he'd said that, but he didn't. That's good. He, yeah. I didn't imagine it. That's fantastic. I, I think David McClay Kidd has said some similar stuff on Derek's podcast again with places, some of the decisions he made about a place like a mammoth dunes or somewhere like that where it's just ridiculously wide and he's saying it's not just left or right it's you know there's there's a whole radius of choices there that 
I'm presenting you with. And it's actually not all choices either. Like you might be aiming at something, but you end up you hit it somewhere else. End up somewhere else, and that that's a whole different thing where you've ended up. It's it's all shades of grey when you've just got a big playing field in front of you. Was it was it McClay Kid whose company did the course in Scotland or Ireland where they just took a bunch of excavators and pushed dirt and shoved it around and then just for three or four days and then they saw what that looked like and built the course on top of that? Was it- uh, well, that's what Doak might think about the castle course, but... Uh, of course, yeah. I thought that was the case. I thought he talked about it on Derek's podcast, which I thought was a fascinating idea, and I don't think it's been particularly well received, that course, but I thought the idea was intriguing. Just make a mess and then build the golf course on top of it, mm. which well, you would probably gets, be for by the sound a bit of, of randomness into it. Yeah, randomness. I think so. I think so, but even pushing dirt with a bulldozer, mm. right, even if you don't have explicitly a golf hole in mind, it will prevent you from making um, – contours as subtle or severe as nature would have before you started pushing the dirt right why not why not play it against you know across the flat ground as it was before um you know and and see what random possibilities nature has presented to you in that situation uh you know i think and and again you know it does sound like it would be a fantastic exercise in golf course architecture but Small golf, you know, it, it dictates that you start to withdraw from the architecture itself, right? You see what is there and you you leave it, right? Yeah. I like that idea of flat ground. Like, I, I, I love it in a very wild environment when there are just periods of fairly flat, banal ground because it just it punctuates the weird landforms that, that you can see coming up or that have been... It just it it helps punctuate those things more so than and it's not everything's not finished to some fine level of perfection. Um, I think of course like uh, Royal Lytham and St Anne's has mm. a lot of different variation in that terrain. It's a pretty unremarkable piece piece of land really, but there's a lot of variation within the terrain and it's not it's not themed. The whole thing isn't themed. If it was. I think there's a hole, the 10th or 11th, it's the par 5 where after, just after you've made the turn. And there's this rippling in the fairway, really, really noticeable rippling on an otherwise completely flat fairway. And first of all, if, if that was a modern course, I feel like that would have been a choice to put the rippling in there. But that's not how that rippling formed. It formed through, I'm sure, I'm sure some geologists could tell us how that formed. <laughs> but... Uh, it or it might have just been formed from you know traffic going over it over time, but it, who knows? That's not the point. Um, <laughs> the point is, I feel like if that was a thing with that course, it would have been repeated hole after hole after hole. You'd have this deliberate rippling put in, but instead, it's just in that one spot in the course, and then you get to the next hole, and it's just a flat fairway. Then you get to the next hole, and it's a little bit dunesy, and you know, it just it's infinitely there's infinite variety there. Mm. And none of it's themed. There's this you get away from this this concept of having the whole thing be themed. Well, for mine, Colin is throwing up some seriously thought-provoking stuff here, and we're going to get back to it all in just a moment. After a reminder that the Golf Society end of season sale is still on, with up to 50% off all sorts of apparel. Under Armour shirts for less than $50, Puma and New Balance shoes at the clearance table, shirts, shorts, trousers, you name it all needing to go, and an extra 20% off for being a Talk and Golf listener. Head to thegolfsociety.com.au and check out the range today. Now back to Colin Chris and the merits of big golf versus small golf. I wonder, Colin, it's no 
This is no surprise when you think about it that the great links courses of Scotland in particular, but Ireland also and England to a certain extent, for most who come to have an interest in golf course architecture, there is something so magical about those places because for the most part, they evolved exactly the way you've described, didn't they? As opposed to having the hand of man, not that they were completely devoid of the hand of man, but for the most part, the old course is probably the the pinnacle example. It sort of formed. We know that yeah. old Tom mucked around and did some things and the 17th green and there was some sort of influence there. But they've Alan evolved Rock. from a different yeah. spot, haven't they? Yeah, no, they've evolved from a different place though, haven't they? To let's buy this piece of land and turn it into a golf course. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. And I think, you know, I've been thinking a lot about that, that site that, uh, you've talked about, um, seven mile beach, mm. right. Mm-hmm. Which is just gorgeous. Mm-hmm. And what beautiful land for golf that is. Um, and I, I wonder, right. What, what would it be like if they, for a month before breaking ground, they just charged people $10 an hour, go out with a golf club. We'll oh. cut a couple holes out there. No numbers. Oh. See where you play, right? And and how you find interest in this, as though you were passing the time with your flock of sheep, right? Um, you know, it's this this idea that that the old course or that links courses in Scotland um, were anything other than you know kind of uh, slow deduction on the part of very amateur golfers, right? Um, you know, I think that's uh, something that's been lost. You know, that idea that there's there's just the finding of that exploration, right? The finding of those possibilities. Which way do we go to have the most fun? Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, that is, you know, quite a way to, to design a golf course, I they, think. They might be just about nuts to tr- enough to try it too. Matt Goggin, I interviewed him last week, and he's absolutely adamant. He wants people to pull it, pull up at the clubhouse <laughs> Of course, with on their, their horses, horses. Yeah. tie them up to the rail <laughs> outside, go in for a drink. Yeah. So he well, might be horse. just a, Matt. If you're listening, I'm not sure if you're nuts enough to try that. But there's there's something. Do you think like you try my matchstick thing as well? Well, it's just a bit drop, like drop 18 matchsticks on the map. It's a bit like the snag <laughs> golf idea, isn't it? You just let the kids show you what they yeah. come up with themselves. And of course, children don't have it well, anywhere near as many preconceptions as we do. They just come up with, oh, that's interesting for that reason. That yeah. reason. What happens if they build like Firestone? <laughs> <laughs> that's a parenting Stupid problem. Kids. Yeah, that's a parenting problem. Uh, that's, that's, that's bad parenting. The other thing that strikes me, of course, Colin, this is a bigger issue for the game, is all of these things that you're talking about are far more interesting, prevalent, and at the forefront when the, ground, the game is predominantly a ground-based game. And golf yeah. continues to involve more and more and more and more as an aerial game which automatically takes much of the interest out of it, it seems to me. But we've really gotten away from a ground-based game, haven't we, in all ways in golf? Yeah, I think that's right. Um, I <laughs> I exclusively play Hickory Golf Clubs because they, they make my golf ball, ball roll a little bit more. Woke Kenzie um, just had an it's... aneurysm. <laughs> <laughs> he won't cope with that at all. Oh, have you I got don't. trestle sticks? What do you got there? Do, yeah? do you have a top hat? Yeah. And <laughs> right. no. Actually, I know you, your Twitter bio yeah. has um, a bow tie, uh, bow tie yeah. doesn't it? You've got a real Matt Smith Doctor Who thing going on there in your Twitter bio. You, you got it. I appreciate that. That's an old photo, so I, I keep that one around. 
um, back when I was thin. I mentioned uh, that to Rod yeah. before. He said, who's Matt Smith? Yeah, who's Matt? I'm not a pop culture Doctor guy. <laughs> <laughs> back to the ground game yeah. thing. My apologies. No, that's okay. Yeah, I think there is something to that, though, right? Um, I'm more keen to to see the, these possibilities that I talk about if I have a ball that's kind of escaping the hole on the ground, right? If I have a ball that takes a bad kick, I'll see what bad luck has presented me. Um, whereas when there's, you know, soft greens, soft targets, whatever it may be, um, I feel like there are far fewer possibilities. Mm. It's, it's the least talked about, I feel like, change in golf is that it has become so aerial. Just to, I remember a couple of years ago out at the Australian Open, just noticing how high professional golfers hit the ball. And so that angle of descent, no matter how firm greens are or any of those things, that angle of descent alone, which was not possible, uh, I assume, well, I'm guessing, even for the very best players many years ago, uh, that's changed the game probably more than anything. Where there's, and it's why the Open is so much fun to watch each year because it's not always the best way. There's still elements of that game which we've seen at St Andrews had to move tees back for that reason because the ball carries so far off the tee. But around the greens, especially, you still get that interest, and that's when golf's at its most interesting. I feel when the ball's on the ground and tracking towards or away from. The viral video today, we're recording this on Sunday Australian time, third round at Riviera, which has been suspended. Today's viral video is Keegan Bradley putting it from 80 feet short of the hole to 50 feet off the green the really? other side. Look, he's never played on Kaikuyu before. <laughs> but watching that unfold, that Dustin Johnson tee shot in Hawaii that Brandel Chambly foolishly, yes, Brandel foolishly described as the greatest shot ever hit, that only got interesting once the ball hit the ground mm-hmm. column. Mm. While the ball's in the air, there's nothing of any interest about that shot. But the real tension builds when the ball hits the ground and starts moving somewhere. And that's lost in a lot of particularly modern professional golf. I think. Probably not so much at the amateur level. We don't have the swing speeds to create those kind of trajectories. But that's what's always been interesting about Lynx golf, I think. That's why I think people go to Scotland, they fall in love with Lynx golf, because you're kind of forced to play the ground a lot. Unless you're really, really, really good with a 60-degree wedge, the only sensible option around all of those greens is to bump and run it or to putt it or to, to – and it's only once you've experienced that you can then say, oh, wow, that's much better than hitting it up in the air and stopping it when it gets on the green. Yeah, and I don't think it's just about, um, you know, pleasure or, or even, you know, the excitement of it, but also the chance for, for these great players to really show their expertise. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, it's – I think the greatest shots that I can remember – are, you know, wow, what is that ball doing on the ground, right? How is that person aware of that bump in that spot on that approach, right? Um, you know, and, and of course, there's a, a degree of randomness there, right? Because even the best professionals can't control the fourth or fifth bounce that their, that their ball takes. But, you know, luck and exploration, that's part of golf and, and um you know, part of part of those players' brilliance, right? They put themselves in the situations to have that good luck and have those exceptionally unlikely shots that make it even more exciting. Well, uh, Steve Williams, interestingly, says the, of all the shots he saw Tiger hit at his peak, the very best shot by far was the chip in him, the 16th at the Masters. He said, not because the ball went in, but because to have any chance to finish within six feet of the hole, he had to hit a spot 
roughly a one-foot circle. There was just no option. Anywhere outside of that, and now he's looking at four. So the fact that when him was icing on the cape, he said by far the very best shot he ever saw him hit with all the circumstances and the pressure and everything of the time because he went on to bogey the next two holes. He wasn't playing too well, but he said that shot was just extraordinary. And, of course, the only memorable great shots really that you can think of maybe hit with the driver are Seve on 10 at the Belfry, mm. hitting it over yep. the water onto the green. For the most part, the highlight reel at the end of the PGA Tour season is never a bunch of tee shots. No. It's always a bunch of chips, pitches, irons that get hold, that sort of thing. And it's interesting from a distance perspective as well, the uh, the wind that you have at a Lynx combined with the firm ground and the hazards on the ground, sometimes the, you, the only way to hit a long shot is- Along the ground. Along the ground, by hitting it very low along the ground. Because the wind is so strong, I don't think, we appreciate it in a temperate climate. The wind can be so strong at a Lynx on, in Scotland or Ireland that the the ball just balloons like way like you wouldn't believe. Like we we play in some strong winds in Australia from time to time, and the ball balloons, sure, but it's nothing compared to a really strong wind on a Lynx. But there's an out for you there because the ground is firm, and you can you can hit a low slingy shot. And I don't know if Bryson's got that shot. You know, but it, it's, I don't see him up there Might find out practicing that. So, right? Maybe he does. Well, I, mean, maybe, I wouldn't you know, be surprised. Yeah, we'd love to. Surprised. We'd love to see. They're, they're all super skillful, of course. They can all do it, but they're not asked to do it very often. And I think that's to golf's detriment, or at least to our detriment, the entertainment it? that we, we miss get. Out. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Because if you're if you've got if you're two hundred meters out from a on the second shot of a par four, which is what can happen into the wind on a moderate length hole in Scotland, the only way you're going to get it to the green is to hood a three iron and try and hit a slingy yeah. uh, slingy Ropes draw or along the ground. Going and and going. that's going to have to land a long way short of the gr- <laughs> of exactly green right. and run up. And you've got to avoid the hazards that are on the ground. Compare that to like hitting, just powering a shot that lands on the green. It's completely about, different. About game. a six iron in the modern era, 200 metres for yeah. most pros. About a six iron or so, just straight up in the air. Track man tells them it's going to land within... This and that, which is not to deride that yeah. skill, but, but it's, with the wind, like the wind, the wind changes all that. Yeah, absolutely. And even for those guys, yeah. the wind, as you say, in in in, uh, in Scotland, sort of changes. To try to bring it back to architecture, then Colin and golf course architecture. Um, what's the what's the solution? You've you, you've neatly outlined problem is probably the wrong word, but lots to think about. What's the way forward in that case? What should Doak and Core and Crenshaw and Hands and how can they continue forward? Which obviously not what's going to happen. I just think it's interesting to think about. Have you have you thought beyond outlining what the issue is as to what a solution, potential solution might look like? Yeah, I think I have. I mean I, I think first of all, I don't I don't see Doak and Corin Crenshaw and Gil Hands and David McClay Kidd. I don't see them taking uh smaller fees anytime soon. And not that they should, right? They are excellent architects who who make excellent work um sorry and who have been a refreshing think, breath of fresh air after 20 or 30 years of some very ordinary architecture mostly it has to be said full cure when it, this is not a knock on any of them they've done wonderful things for the game no mm-hmm. question sorry i just thought we better get that in and i know it and i think they'll continue to do wonderful mm-hmm. things for the game right i think they'll continue to make big golf courses um what i think we should advocate for though right is that other wing of the museum the folk art wing where 
there is an unprofessionalized architect, be it a, a young person or even someone who is not a golfer at all, um, even if it's someone, you know, on a town council who has found a, a cut cutting or a, a cup cutting, um, you know, tool uh, to go out and and find in public land, right, a golf hole, right, or to go out and hire a young architect, an architect who um, won't have much of a budget, uh, who can, you know, just find something that is there, right, and provide that um, lower level, and I, I say lower level with all the love in my heart, right, the lower level golf course that costs maybe $10 to play, right? We go out and we, we find what possibilities are out there. I think there is, I think there's an opportunity for municipal golf to, to really capitalize on what I call small golf, you know, and I, I think it has to do, you know, I think, I think it's um, not as much of a sacrifice for municipal courses or for golfers as one might imagine right now, right? There can be, such pleasure derived out of small golf. Um, and I think that, you know, municipal golf can fill that hole, right? Small golf can, can fill that. Mm. You, you mentioned Seven Mile Beach before, Colin. There's another development in Tasmania called Arm End, which you've probably seen some photos of online. It's this an, another – it's it'll be a public course, I think. It, it, it definitely um, – and it's on an incredible peninsula that goes out into the Derwent River near Hobart. And uh, recently the architects, um, Crafter and Mogford, posted some photos where they're just mowing out where they're planning to put the holes. And they had yeah. some aerials taken where all they'd done is just mowing whatever grass was there. And I think your colleague Garrett Morrison, uh, Colin, um, just tweeted about it saying, Am I crazy to think they could just stop with that? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> which I think yeah. was a great observation. Like you, know, you look at it and you go, well, "Well, yeah, I could just get a club and start playing that." And if you just keep mowing it, you'll probably have a decent playing surface eventually. <laughs> like, and right. f- and formalize the greens. You know, it's um, uh, it, it, there's something to be said for that. You know, but uh, yeah. the pay thing is important, isn't it? Because they're paid to do more than that, <laughs> so you've got right. to do more. Exactly, you're obliged to do more. Exactly. And I, I'm not an agronomist, right? And I'm sure there are many agronomists listening to this right now, rolling their eyes at me talking about leaving things as they are, right? When, in fact, um, playable surfaces are so hard to come by out there, right? Without grading it, maybe even, um, in, you know, sand capping it, um, importing grass species, et cetera, et cetera. But all, but of, that all case, of that's just right, expectations, those, right? What's that? All of that's just the golfer's expectation. Absolutely. Like it, that's exactly right. Like it doesn't. You can you can play off terrible. Uh, I played off cow grass in Malaysia. Yeah, horrible stuff. Didn't stop you playing golf. Yeah, by any stretch. Absolutely hmm. right. And I I talk about this a little bit in that fried egg article. Right. I love getting a bad break. I love it. I love having an uneven lie, a ball in a divot. Right. Being right behind a tree. Whatever it is, right? I love the idea that, you know, this isn't a game that is laid out for me necessarily, right? This isn't a game where I have to have the exact 
species and subspecies and strain of grass beneath my ball to have fun. Um, you know, and I think that is part of the draw of small golf, mm. right? It, that's unfair. <laughs> well, here's a very big question, Colin. I've asked a lot of people this. I have no answer for it. Nobody I've ever come across has an answer for it. But why do we as golfers, and I'll talk about it as, an, as us as an amorphous mass, have this fascination and reverence for course condition above all else? It may be one of the most dangerous things in the game, I think, this absolute obsession with course conditioning. Um, yeah. Why are we like that? Why And why do we as golfers naturally, maybe it's a similar thing to what you're saying here about the big golf, small golf with architects, we take a game that is such a free-form pursuit and try to restrain it in so many ways that uh, we must have 18 holes, there must be four par fives, then four par threes, yeah. it must be a certain length, it must be a certain par. What is that? It must be something within humans, isn't it, that makes us want to start to formalise that stuff because it's, it's all the stuff that makes golf less fun. All of that makes it right. less interesting. Yeah, and I think, I think for me it's the, the creeping presence of my least favourite word in golf, which is fairness. Oh, you know, I think the F word. Um, humans feel that they're owed something for something else, right? If I make a good swing... I should have a good shot at the end of it. Um, and I think that is antithetical to the origins of golf and to the, the spirit of the game, right? The idea that you are paid exactly what you have worked for, right? No one, no one in the 14th century on St. Andrew's links was thinking about that, right? They, they were trying to get the ball in the hole, um, you know, the reason we have this discussion about golf course architecture is because unlike m most other sports, the playing surface changes place to place, right? And it becomes an art in this way. Um, why, you know, why try to rein that in, like you say, um, but to make it more fair, more universal, right? But to make the game more... Uh, transferable from one place to another place. Uh, I think it's fairness. To those of us who spend way too much time likening golf to life, the truth about life is that that isn't the case either, is it? Good people die young. <laughs> it happens. Yeah. Good people who've never smoked or drank or done anything bad die of cancer, and people who drink and smoke their whole lives and hurt other people and have a litany of broken relationships live till they're 90. That's just a reality. And yet we just don't like that. We naturally seem to push against that. I think golf's a perfect example of that. You know, If I hit a shot in the rough and you hit a shot in the rough, we both must have exactly the same penalty. Uh, I don't think you have to rub your hands together like Colin and it's like, oh, I've, yeah. got, a, I've got a bad break. He's fair I live well, with I this. Well, Clayton's is a bit the same. Mike Clayton doesn't complain, but has pointed out more than once. In a divot. He's played at Fantastic. Metropolitan for 40 years and never had a bad lie. And it's not, not to the betterment of the game, he says. You know, It's a great testament to the fantastic team at Metropolitan who look after the place. But doesn't uh, miss a fair way either. So. That, that, they're bigger concepts, right, I, I suppose, aren't they, Colin? Right, right. And I think, I think on the other side of, you know, of that coin of, um, of appreciating bad breaks, really, you know, I only appreciate a bad break if I'm able to extricate myself from it in some way, <laughs> right? right. Um, and so, too, the people who have grown old and have had 
very difficult lives, you know, I think you hear them look back on their lives with some sense of accomplishment, some sense of even joy after emerging from challenges, yeah. right? Mm-hmm. Um, so it is with golf, right? If it, if it wasn't hard, it wouldn't be fun. Um, if it's not unfair, it's not fun for me. No, which plugs neatly into a constant issue that we face in this game, particularly when we talk about the professional game and the distance discussion. And the immediate response, knee-jerk response of so many people is, this is how you make the game harder. But that's not answering the question that's being asked. The question is, how do you make it more interesting? More interesting and and cheaper and more accessible yeah. as well, because I think Garrett Morrison's comment about arm end, like just leave it as it is, that's going to be a much cheaper course Absolutely. to maintain. Stop paying Crafter and Mogford right now. And and the <laughs> they're done. But also, you'll probably have less water requirements mm-hmm. and and that sort of thing. And I think water's a bit of an issue for that site. But um, you, you look at a course. I, the thing that the thing I found most confusing in golf in the most in the last 12 months or so was how Cleve Hill in the UK almost went under mm. because they it just must cost barely anything to run that place and and they charge like 10 10 pounds or something as green fees or something ridiculously low they could charge a hell of a lot more uh, and it's been saved now uh, which is fantastic there's a really good cookie jar golf podcast For the yeah that's right there's an excellent cookie jar golf podcast well the, uh, with cookie the new... jar golf who were responsible for saving the place because they were the ones who brought they brought some attention to it yeah but you've got cleve hill there minchin hampton olds near there and uh, painswick is another one uh which uh all i think fitting this small golf model um that colin's talking about where they're i th- don't think nobody's ever seeded those fairways there or or laid turf or anything like or that. It's grass. It, it just, the grass that's yeah. going to go there. Exactly. It's just right. you know they mow and mow until they've, you've got an acceptable playing surface, and it's you know gang mowers that the council brings in or something like that. It's nothing nothing special. Yeah. Um, but the golf there is tremendous. The landforms that they've got are inc- incredibly quirky, and you would never choose to do it, it from a computer screen that way. And uh, to me, that's the sort of golf I'm passionate about. And hopefully we'll get to, we'll talk about this, we can tease this a little bit now, but we'll talk a bit about Kamaruka um, down in New South Wales here, where hopefully we're getting, get to do the same sort of thing, like restore this course, which is exactly like a Cleve Hill or a uh, Midgen Hampton Old, or it's its own unique character, but it's it's paddock golf evolved um, with with some really interesting architecture randomly placed we'll do a whole episode on Kamaruka in the the next couple of weeks before that I want to come back to probably not so prevalent in the states is my sense of it Colin though it may be a reality certainly in Canada Scotland and here in Australia this pressure on public golf we've got some very high profile instances here Moore Park of course is another article another tired and tiresome article appeared in our only national daily newspaper at the weekend decrying golfers being for the few and all of those other sorts of things that we hear. How does the things that you're talking about potentially plug into that? Because if I've said it once, I've said it a million times and people are bored with it, but golf's image with non-golfers is a real problem. They've got an incorrect image of the game. It's easy to find the stereotypes that they that, that right. non-golfers think golf is, and it's all too easy, in fact. And that story that was in the paper was an absolute classic example of it. There's a the, the nation's only national daily newspaper couldn't even manage to send a photographer to Moore Park to take a photo that the story's about. They pulled an eye stock image of a golf cart 
and that was the photo <laughs> with the stories. That tells you almost everything you need to know about the lack of knowledge behind the person and, and the people putting that story together. But how does what you're talking about potentially plug into some of those issues? Yeah, I think ultimately that is the more dangerous side of, of big golf, even among these you know, these great architects who have done so much for the art, the fees at these courses are very high, right? And even just looking at those fees, you you have some piece of evidence in this argument that golf is not inclusive, right? Um, golf is not welcoming necessarily, except for to those who are already involved in the game. Um, so I think the opposite of this, right? Small golf, things that um, courses that can be found on the landscape, right? Courses that are not necessarily dictating a certain way to play. Um, that will lead to not only lower fees, but a more welcoming experience in the game itself. Um, you know, if you can hit the ball anywhere, you're just trying to get it in that hole all the way down there. Um, I think that's a, a much more attractive game, even in, in theory, Right. Um, than a course where you have to pull up in a golf cart, right, and follow the cart path. And maybe it's 90-degree rule that day. Maybe it's cart path only. There's a big water hazard with a fountain, right? And um, God, you know, we're both like- flinching here. As, you, as you're rolling out these statements, <laughs> yeah. they're like no they're being hit with a cane, <laughs> oh each, each one. It's horrible. Oh, gosh. <laughs> but that's exactly the point, right? I mean, small golf can be this – it can be – a way for municipalities to really welcome people into the land, right? To welcome people into their public spaces, to um, to prioritize the people over the theory of the game, over the standards of those who who love great golf courses or whatever whatever that na- that word means to you. Great, you know, big golf courses. People who love those. Municipal golf courses don't have to be that, right? They can be just a flat field, like we were talking about earlier, with a hole at one end. Um, and they can be very successful that way. I think a, a big a big golf course can also have the traits that you're talking about. Like, a, to me, like, Royal Melbourne Royal is Melbourne. colossal. Like, it's big, you know. Right. It's big and grand. But it's not, it's not micro-shaped. No, you know, it just, it's not ostentatious or pretentious as none of those things. Yeah. It, is a, I think it, it does all of those things I think you just mentioned where it welcomes you into the environment. And I guess this is where some architects we, – we promised Colin that we'd disagree with him. Yeah, actually, you better do some disagreeing. So, now. But this is where some architects would probably take exception to some of what you've written in there that I, I think they would argue that uh, you know on a, on a Tom Doak course or a, a Core Crenshaw or whatever, they are finding – holes where where it's more or less just there and they found it they're doing that and because they're not drawing up elaborate plans on a computer screen for the most part before they go out they have to do a certain amount of that just to sell it to the club but for the most part they're going out and finding stuff and i think they'd argue that they don't uh yeah they take opportunities when they come to just put a green in a spot where it just can be a green and they're not necessarily building usga greens if they're on a nice site with sand or whatever so there's not a lot of shaping and construction that goes into whatever they're building. And there might have been a bit of a sand blowout there already that they can just formalise a tiny bit and make into a bunker. 
um, and that, that was in a random spot. It's not placed strategically. There was no decision about where to put that thing. It was, you know, the old the sheep wearing out a little hollow or something, that, that idea. Colin's going to eat you alive. <laughs> <laughs> no, I think he'd agree, I think he'd agree um, but it's difficult in the essay that Colin wrote to not be – to not talk in generalisms a yes, little bit. Absolutely. And I, and right, right, right. So I've just defended you as well as criticised you. <laughs> I wasn't really disagreeing. I was yeah. just trying to throw out an argument I didn't really believe in. But he, he does have a point, though, doesn't he? That This movement that we see and the, the, the architects that we talk about, you know, the, the, the rock stars, the kids and Core Crenshaw and Hands and all those sorts of guys, the truth is that a good deal of their work, in fact, is based in those small golf principles. Not all of it, but a good deal of it, is it not? Colin. It is, but there's still such high standards for turf, for upkeep, right? I, I've yet to see the Tom Doak course with a $20 green fee, like the one, you know, a mile down the road from me, mm. um, that I enjoy more than Chambers Bay, as I've said uh, in Andrews this Beaches interview. Course. Now, that's not Tom Doak's fault, of mm. course, no, no. right? Um, you know, I think that ultimately speaks to these values golfers have, right? And, and what they want to see, right? Mm-hmm. Um, which is why I'm, I'm not morally opposed to big golf. Um, I think what, I'm, what I've been trying to get at with the article, right, what I've been trying to understand for myself is how these two things can coexist and how... Um, you know, on the other side of it, right? On the, the consumer side, on the golfer side, right? They can be two very different experiences, but, but both very enjoyable, right? Two wings of the museum, as it mm. were. Um, you know, n- not, not one, you know, held over the other uh, for whatever reason. Yeah, when one naturally evolves to the other, I suspect. I mean, most of us start our golf life at something more resembling the small golf experience mm-hmm. you're talking about and become interested in the game and then start to get more interested and pursue some of those big big golf experiences that you're talking about. And so I think there's a natural, which not everybody will follow. We all know people who never gone beyond their local small public course and still love the game just as much as any of us do. So. And it's interesting to see right. how small golf can go off the rails a little bit as well and I think we have numerous examples of it in Sydney for example where uh, a lot of our suburban courses were built with modest means at least to start with and what you get out of that is very boring push-up greens and square tees just pushed up again and back and forth routing it's just just banal boring stuff you know like the, nobody was making any decisions so it ticks that box for small golf like there was very little right. decision making going on uh it's just you know they're all kind of found holes because it's just what fit into the property but then the actual f- features the the playing surfaces that you interact with are just these it's just so predictable like cut and fill into and a I hill guess, build a green yeah, up it's guess, just boring i guess it's that idea of predictability that i would ask you about right is it that they have those courses have tried to imitate big golf courses and they don't have the resources oh. or the design or the layout or the land <laughs> to adequately do so, right? So they've gone away from the unpredictability that would make such a little community course or a suburban course really interesting, right? Um, is that what has happened? Possibly. I, I think it gets compounded over the decades as those courses actually become as quite affluent. Involved, yeah. 
and then they start. they have money to start <laughs> to, to stuff it up, trying things. Then they stuff it up, and they do tree planting programs and things yeah, like that. Here, here's one one element I think is probably where I disagree might be the wrong word. Whether you maybe even consider this is the danger of following a small golf model as you're sort of suggesting or outlining in this essay is not the danger that you could actually just get some patently bad golf. And how does that serve the game in any way? Yeah, I think I think you could, right? And and this ultimately might be the role for the architect in small golf. Um, after all, right, Alan Robertson made the 17th green at St. Andrews. Mm-hmm. Tom Morris made the 18th green at St. Andrews, thus turning unremarkable holes into great ones, um, arguably. Mm. But uh, I think... I think the the requirement is that you do as little as possible, right? If you need a little more interest, dig a pit. If you need a little more interest, build a mound, right? If you need interest in a particular lot, look for the place to put a hole that will be the most interesting. Um, you know, of course, you will end up with golf courses that are not world-class. I think that's inevitable with all or with most golf courses, I should say. Um, but overall, all right, you'll have this understanding of the game as a little bit more place-based, right? A little bit more accessible. And as I argue, just as fun. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's. Oh, we probably haven't got time to go into this at this point in the podcast, but the, the idea of minimalism is a topic we haven't really talked a lot about in here. But to me, and I think, it sounds like you're probably going to agree with this, Colin, is that a lot of minimalism as we see it presented to us isn't very minimal at all. In fact, there's a lot of there's a lot going on <laughs> you don't to want create to see the that minimal being made. That's right. And I, I always think back to something when we had Lucas Michelle on the podcast, he made a comment about how minimalism is it really actually the fact like if if you've got this man made structure like a square green that you find at a McDonald's or a rainer course or something like that, isn't that more minimal than something that's mm. been reshaped to imitate to nature? And, yeah, create interesting pin positions. Yeah, like if all you've done is just squared off a pile of dirt, then that's pretty that's, minimal. That's about the minimal <laughs> amount right. that you could do, and that's actually you, know, you can make a case that that's truly minimal. And uh, and I in a parkland setting, I, I really like the idea of a man-made, like not trying to shy away from the contrivance of a man-made structure. Like, I think that's that's fine. Mm. Yeah, I think there's something attractive to me about um, Victorian golf yes. architecture, right? Yep. Previous to John Lowe, that that it's attractive because it's it's not <laughs> pretending to be anything other oh, than no, man-made. it's right? le- leaning into it. Um, yeah. Right, right. And, you know, I do wonder. Um, I, I think you're right. Yeah, I think I... Ultimately, I agree. I put a poem in the article that speaks to that split, I think. Would the Victorian game have thrived, though, Colin, in the long term? It's an impossible question to answer, but would it have thrived the way we have seen golf as we know it in this morning? Would we have seen it thrive had it not been for that interference from Lowe and that bunker on the fourth hole at Woking and everything that that sort of spawned beyond there? Right. I'm not sure. Yeah, I don't think so. No. I... I don't think so. I mean, I guess I, I ultimately I don't think so because Victorian golf architecture was such a departure from what was then small golf, yeah, that's right? True too, Finding yeah. your way through the Linkland. 
In fact, that Victorian golf course actually might end up being the ultimate endpoint of the sorts of things that you're talking about if you're not careful because, once again, we can't help ourselves. Man will want to interfere with the notion of small golf until it ends up at some stage being Victorian golf course design. Mm-hmm. Uh, not all of which was horrendous, by the way. There was some interesting stuff. Agreed. As, yeah, I like that. part of that as well. well. The, that geometry that you see mirrored in the McDonald's and behind the greens, the tent, trenches, trench, and the trench bunkers. Really and, yeah, that's, it's interesting stuff. Yeah. Mm. yeah, terrific. We don't have the time to continue to talk like this, Colin, but we're going to get you back on that, I'm absolutely sure. Fabulous piece, as I said. I'll link it in the show notes. Really thought-provoking. And I'm sure people will read it and they'll disagree with lots of it, but that is more important <laughs> than anything because that's where you get discussion and new ideas and things move forward on that basis. And I'm sure you don't want everyone to agree with you, do you, Colin? It's nice, but... No, not at all. Oh, my gosh. I wouldn't be a poet if I didn't want people to disagree with me. <laughs> he wants bad lies. He wants to be. He wants to get kicked off into the rough. It'd be, yeah. You are Woke Kenzie's ultimate <laughs> target, so congratulations. You got it. No, I'm, I'm good friends with that Twitter account. He's seen me before. <laughs> well, he's, really, he's, he's actually very good because he does point out all of the nonsense that gets taken and turned into something that none of which has got anything to do with golf. Um, and good on him for doing so. The game needs to be kicked in the ass from time to time and he does with that been fabulous of you to join us actually just before we let you go Colin I must mention we got some correspondence from Canada like Andrew wrote to us from Canada he's been listening to the podcast which is very nice and he said some nice things about that but he's been particularly interested in the Moore Park issue which is going to just come up again obviously this past weekend is going to bubble away on Twitter it's lots of similar issues in Canada he said we know that there's similar issues in Scotland because we talked to Michael mm-hmm. McEwen from Bunkard so this whole public golf issue is not just affecting us here in Australia and he was quite thankful for us for raising it Rick Young does a terrific job in Rick Canada Rick Young does yeah of, uh, of yep. in fact Rick Young <laughs> Rick Young has probably written more about Moore Park in the last month than I have uh, he, on he Twitter has, which is does a tremendous job and I, I really enjoy job. the fact that Rick probably disagrees with us on a lot of stuff about he does. distance and that yeah. sort of thing but there's this common ground. We, yeah. we, all, we love golf courses. We love playing golf. And the, the Venn diagram, I always say the Venn diagram of the people who are like in favour of controlling equipment and the people who want equipment to be out of control <laughs> or just as is, maybe I'm being unfair, um, it would almost be a 100% overlap. It's just tiny little differences on the edges. It was a revelation the, to me that you could be wrong about one thing and right about another. Yeah. Rick Young is absolutely <laughs> the poster child for it. He's completely wrong about the rollback and the distance. He's completely yeah. right about public golf. But I just wanted to make the point, it does seem to be something that's gathering a bit of steam. Golfers are being are getting concerned about it, which I think is a fantastic thing. Have a listen to the Blind Shot podcast, Dave Hill, uh, one bearded golfer. He's doing a lot of terrific interviews around sort of community golf and, and good on him. He's being proactive doing out there trying to promote ideas and talk and discussion about what might be done. But we do appreciate it, Andrew. Thank you for writing. Uh, if you've lasted this long into this episode, I don't know, architecture might not be your thing. A lot of people would have turned off, you know, right at the start, Colin, when I said we were going to talk about golf course architecture. It's funny, isn't it? People get really weird about golf course architecture. They just say, ah, I'm not interested in that at all. And they'll turn off and wait, which is such a shame, isn't it? A lot, of, a lot of people don't think about the architecture of the house they live in, so camp. Can't uh, blame golfers just, specifically for that. Touched a just, nerve just get, right there. Get comfortable. We can we can start talking about Bill Bryson and and that's a, yeah. uh, anyway, <laughs> good stuff. Good stuff. So thank you, anyway. Go and have a listen to uh, the Blind Shots podcast and and Dave's doing some terrific work over there. And keep listening to Good Good because we'll keep talking about it. Great to have you on board today, Colin. Love to get you back again at some time. It was really enjoyable to talk about this stuff. And uh, I've left. I'll go away thinking about stuff, and that's really good and important. I enjoy that. So thanks for that. Appreciate it. Thank you very much to you both. I appreciate the conversation. Indeed. And thanks to you, Logue. I thought your disagreeing was 
woefully inadequate. <laughs> God, there wasn't enough, <laughs> wasn't enough of it. It wasn't particularly well structured. It was all cut down fairly quickly. But look, good on you for having a go. But thanks for your time today, mate. Thank, thank, thank you, Rod. <laughs> thank, thank you for your disagreeing. Yeah. <laughs> episode 65 of the Good Good Golf Podcast in the books. But don't panic. There will be episode 66 next week here on the Good Good Golf Podcast. <laughs>